0: Welcome to the new Wave Post Punk Security Hour. You may know Berlin best from their song, Metro, but today I'm thinking of their hit, Take My Breath Away, which also appears on the Top Gun soundtrack along with Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. And if there were ever two song titles that captured the essence of risk management and application security, those are surely near the top. Which means this week we talk with Carolyn Wong from Cobalt about the tolerance and transfer of risk and what that means for your supply chain and your secure code. In the news segment, Jupiter pulls a few too many Azure DBs into orbit. OpenSSL pulls a few too many strings. Bumble pulls up a little too close. Cloud Security pulls out a map of the terrain and more. Grab some Ray-Bans and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly.
1: This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. In any business today, there comes a moment. The moment you realize you can secure the code as fast as you write it. Instead of testing everything, you can just test the right things. It's not about tools, but intelligent risk management. That's the moment you choose Synopsis. Build secure, high-quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis. We discuss application security a lot on this show, and we know that the implications for code security have become even greater as cloud adoption accelerates software development. ShiftLeft bridges the gap between security teams and developers to find and fix vulnerabilities accurately from the source. ShiftLeft Core is an innovation in code security with industry-leading accuracy and speed. It combines next-generation static code analysis, intelligent software composition analysis, secrets detection, security insights, and contextual developer security education in one easy-to-use platform. Learn more and create your free, yes, free account at securityweekly.com forward
0: slash shift left. This is episode 164, like the Commodore, recorded August 30th, 2021. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, Mr. Kinsella.
2: I am not coming to you on a Commodore this week. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Dropping down to VIC-20. Let's see. Um, let's see. What else could we do? We could also say if you missed any of our previously recorded witty banter, just like that you witnessed just now, uh, or if you want to look, look at our uh, webcasts and technical trainings, they are in fact available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com slash on demand. Carolyn Wong is the Chief Strategy Officer at COBOL. As CSO, Carolyn leads the security, community, and people teams. She brings to the role a proven background in communications, cybersecurity, and experience delivering global programs. Carolyn's close and practical information security knowledge stems from her broad experience as a digital consultant, a Symantec product manager, and day-to-day leadership roles at eBay and Zynga. Carolyn also hosts the Humans of InfoSec podcast. Go check it out. She teaches cybersecurity courses on LinkedIn Learning and has authored the popular textbook, Security Metrics, A Beginner's Guide. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you for joining us.
3: Hi, I'm just, you know, messing around with the unmute button. Um, <laughs> it is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Messing around with the unmute button sounds like a perfect on theme for risk tolerance or uh, maybe uh, risk transfer. I'm not sure which, but um, you've joined us today to talk about
3: risk, risk. avoidance
0: risk avoidance there we go <laughs> excellent <laughs> metaphor and, and real time lesson w- w- one of the aspects of this too is we we were kind of chatting before this about what is risk tolerance what is risk transfer what is risk avoidance is it, it comes out of i think part of a dis- a couple aspects of a discussion one is just how do you start with the security and I, to me i think more importantly how do we avoid doing what probably hasn't been working for the last 20 years in the sense of security coming over to the DevOps team or the dev team and saying, hey, here's a bunch of vulns. go fix your stuff, and then walking away. Doesn't seem like a very constructive, collaborative approach. So um, l- l- let's let's start to talk about some of that risk and risk tolerance, risk avoidance, risk transfer. What what does that mean to make, or how can we use that to make these conversations a bit more constructive and richer conversations with DevOps teams?
3: So the place that I come from uh, and where my dev- uh, where my perspective got developed. I used to work on the eBay global information security team. And we would find all these bugs. We would do pen testing. We would do scanning. We would get get reports from third-party security researchers. uh, And we would take these piles of bugs and we would go to the development teams and say, please fix these. Uh, And mostly, the response we would get is... We have really important things to do, uh, and it's not what you're asking us to do, security people. Um, And so what I have spent a lot of time thinking about is how does a security leader get funding and investment for an application security program? And there's different components to this. There's a headcount component. Certainly, there's an expenses component. And absolutely, there is a stakeholder buy in and activity component. Um, in a lot of cases, security folks can go and find all the flaws and bugs that they want to, but those issues are not going to get addressed unless someone in a different role actually decides to do something about it. Um, and I think that. The concept of risk tolerance is so interesting. You know, um, I went on a bike ride with my family yesterday, and we happen to be the type of family where we're very, for the most part, strict about. You've got to wear your helmet. Um, And this is an example of a personal risk tolerance decision. Um, And there's all sorts of reasons why people might decide not to wear a bicycle helmet. You know, maybe you're just biking around in your own neighborhood and you're a super strong bicyclist, um, but maybe you're biking on a mountain that you've never been to before and you're just an amateur. You know, there are all of these different uh, factors that might influence your decision. And so, When it comes to organizations and the technology they choose to use and the type of business they choose to run on that software, as well as all the decisions they're making about, are we testing our software? Are we inventorying our software? What are we doing about the problems that we find? Are we addressing those problems? An organization has a risk tolerance regardless of whether it's being talked about or not. Uh, And I do think that the primary job of information security professionals, of application security professionals, it is our job to try and manage risk. Um, And so I think that there's a conversation that cannot just happen within an application security team. It's got to take place with decision makers, uh, with folks who are going to be taking the action required. Um, And it unfortunately can't be as simple as, hey, boss, how's your risk tolerance feeling today on a scale of one to ten? It's it's really a different discussion. Um, And I think that. um, When we as security folks are able to have this discussion more effectively, um, then frankly, we're just going to get a lot more money and people and investment in our programs.
0: Hey, more money, that sounds, I don't, I don't think too many people would object to that. And w- the, what I think is that you're, w- one of the key ask points that I think you're getting, getting there is the idea of context, the idea of moving beyond just, this is an OWASP top 10 entry, here's a CVSS score for this particular vuln. It sounds like you're describing more about when risk tolerance or just what is the risk and and how should we prioritize what to fix is well what's the context here how does this particular vuln relate to this application what kind of business impact might it potentially have things like that so that does sound to me though that you actually have to become a bit more expert not so much on the OWASP top 10 to beat up on that a little bit but on what the business is actually building. So what are some ways that you've seen, whether at eBay or or elsewhere, um, the the security teams come in and have good conversations to build that context so that they can say, uh, have a bit more informed uh, opinion about what that risk tolerance is, let alone just what the uh, app, app inventory
3: might be. So I do have a recommendation which is I do think that a lot of technical security folks have a tendency to focus on technical security vulnerabilities and all of their inner workings. Um, I think that it's in our best interest to spend as much time as we spend on learning about sort of like all the ins and outs of the latest breach and exactly how it happened and all the different software versions and the vulnerabilities and all of that investment in of our time that we make to learn about those things, there's an opportunity to go and watch your company's latest earnings call. There's an opportunity to attend your company all hands and really understand what are the business objectives. Because I think ultimately... Security is about protecting value. And I think that we, as security professionals, have an opportunity to do our job the very best that we can if we have an in depth understanding of how that value is created. Um, I I think that, you know, part of my perspective on this comes from, uh, in particular, a few years uh, when I was at Sigital which later got acquired by Synopsys. And during that time, that was really my sort of first foray into application security. So the first half of my career, I had really been on the GR si- GRC side of the house. And then when I started at Sigital, and in particular, when I began to lead b assessments, assessments, I, I began to think of these frameworks in a different way. You know, um, there's this term best practices. And like, what even is a security best practice? You know, we've got a n- number of different regulations and frameworks. And a lot of these things say, you should blah. You should use multi-factor authentication. You should patch vulnerabilities. These are all definitely good ideas. I'm not saying that they're not. But what's interesting to me about about these, um, and to some extent, something like the OWASP top 10 is... Just like you mentioned, Mike, it's lacking context. So, you know, I could take sort of my super basic shoulds and say, here are some security best practices. You should go and do these things. Um, One of the cool things about BSIM actually is that whereas a lot of best practices frameworks are... Prescriptive, the BSim is actually descriptive. It's actually an observable model, um, and so what I think is cool about this is there's a difference between saying you should brush your teeth, <laughs> um, and then actually like mm-hmm. is a person actually doing it. And so the cool thing about BSim is that it's observable. I think that when it comes to risk management, however, like doing risk management well absolutely includes knowing the context of your specific organization. Um, so for example, I wanna share a few uh, risk management objectives. Uh, these I discovered through conversations with a very good friend and uh, mentor of mine, Sammy Miguez. Um, so one of them is, what if we got together as security folks and business leadership folks and we said, look, we want to prevent the same cybersecurity problems from happening over and over again. Um, this requires context. So, for example, is is your organization even mature enough to know if the same types of issues keep showing up? Do you even have reliable defect discovery uh, processes in place? And do you have uh, tracking and reporting for those findings? You know, another question. Another, uh, risk management objective uh, that that one of us might propose uh, in order to um, drive a risk tolerance discussion might be something like, we want to reduce the probability that malicious attackers can stop critical systems and applications from functioning. So there's, again, a bunch of contextual factors here. Do, do you even know which systems and processes are critical to your organization? I was just about to ask again, that question, yeah. Yeah. Again, do you, do you have defect discovery processes? And then do you know what kind of attacker is most likely to target your organization? You know, and there's, we could kind of go on and on, but those are just a couple of uh, examples where context is really key. I think that, you know, um, it is a mistake for any security person to go in and give a recommendation or ask for something without having some of the appropriate context.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of what you've been describing, too, in in ways of getting context about the business, working with the product teams, listening to earnings reports, things like that, um, th- I'm going to take us on a shift, though, to perhaps a place where it's harder to get context, potentially, and, and that's where I'm going with that is supply chain, because that mm-hmm. still is obviously incurring a risk, and you can still make decisions on a vuln, perhaps, but uh, I th- I think there's also an element of risk transfer that may be perhaps unintentional, um, or perhaps intentional. In the sense of we don't want to write some new code to con- to execute some basic function and repeat what's already been built. That's what I'm trying to go for there. So we're going to use this third parties, you know, this open source package. Um, and supply chain. And of course, in 2021, supply chain is, you know, on everybody's uh, bingo cards for the year. And I think that ties into to that aspect of risk tolerance, or maybe risk, let's call it risk management, because I think what we're not talking about is a perfectly secure environment. We're talking about how well do you understand and have comfort level in your environment so what with that said um there's my opening preamble your honor uh you know how have you seen this type of approach applied to supply chain discussions and here i'm thinking more about less about the technical sides of things and more about the uh, maybe the people and the the process aspects because a lot of what you've been describing as well aren't just well uh, asset inventory perhaps is go out scan or do something to discover but a lot of what you're describing is actually conversations with people, building those relationships. So, how how does that fit in with supply chain?
3: So first, I want to just really acknowledge that supply chain is super hard, right? If you are an organization that was using Kaseya or SolarWinds and their update servers got hacked and then you were trying to do the right thing and update and patch your, you know, version of their software, like that's that's tough to avoid. That is risk that is difficult to manage. Um, I don't have any silver bullet answers here. However, uh, I do have some perspectives to share. Um, one of them is to ask yourself Do I, like, who's better at doing this thing? Am I better at doing it because I have control? Or is it actually a better idea for someone else to do it? so um, a really simple example is I actually recently as a side hobby started my own online crystal shop and I use Etsy um, and because I use Etsy I also don't have to collect anyone's you know mm. payment information um, I just use PayPal square you know whatever integrations there exist and I think that in a lot of cases you know, an online retailer, an online e-commerce shop, um, it's generally, I think, going to be in their best interest not to manage the whole collection and protection of payment data directly themselves. That's, that's probably a good thing to outsource to someone like a Square who like, that's what they're all about. They're, they're just really good at that. Um, and so there is kind of this judgment call, like who can protect this data better, me or this other person? Do I trust myself to do it or do I trust them to do it better? And this is really tough because you do kind of give up that aspect of control. I mean, a, a silly but physical analogy is like, if I'm flying from Portland to San Francisco, like i'm gonna manage my risk by having like professional pilot fly the plane that i'm sitting in and i'm just gonna like sit myself in that passenger seat i'm not interested in like having the control over my destiny of of being the person flying that plane i think um you know that 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 would be silly <laughs> so it's um indeed it's it's not easy and i think um i think sometimes it's more straightforward than others I do wonder a little bit I do wonder a little bit about how we as security professionals can sort of leverage this dependency that we all have on each other to try and get everyone's security to be better because that's in all of our best interest. And so I don't know if that is more severe fines than penalties for organizations that make software that other organizations are highly dependent upon um i don't know to what extent we can try and make any sort of security control mandatory you know i've wondered oh, yes. to myself is the place where this mandatory security control thing comes from actually Cyber insurance. I don't think that's actually correct, but it's. I think it's an interesting thought path, which is to say, what if you know? And I think this happens to some extent today. In order to purchase cybersecurity insurance, or maybe your rate changes depending on uh, your your controls, you know that are tested and audited and and proven to some extent. Um, that's one thing. The other thing that I wonder about is. Sort of like a socks for security, right? So when when socks was introduced, um, before that, uh, you could say probably there was a lot more financial fraud going on, and then post you know socks implementation, probably a lot less. Um, I wonder when something like that is coming. You know, if you're a public company.
0: Yeah, I would say so. You're going on there, and I'm curious too because you've you're hitting that aspect of supply chain of risk transfer, or, or you know, moving to the supply chain of services and data handling, and a lot of you, you've switched definitely on to how could we basically make it better? What are the things that might drive incentives? Because I think on the other side of the 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 coin of that, at the very beginning, I, I'm I, you probably didn't you know as an individual send Etsy a uh, vendor security questionnaire to say, hey, what are you doing with your security so that I can uh, be, be reliant on trusting you with my, my online shop, even though that's what, you know, companies, you know, B2B companies do all the time. Fill out this vendor security questionnaire and tell me, give me your last report of and uh, or last attestation and we'll go from there. That seems like that's what people do as perhaps not a best practice, but a practice that we'll do because everybody else does it. But maybe it's not really getting us where we need to be going.
3: Yeah, I do think that there is an opportunity when it comes to how do we negotiate these transactions and these relationships. Um, And part of it has to do with power. You know, as sort of a little small business on Etsy, you know, it's not as though I have a ton of leverage uh, to say, you know, what are your security practices let alone i demand these sort of security practices um but there are going to be folks uh, who do have leverage you know when we're talking about b2b and a large enterprise company you know asking a software firm for their vendor security and then finding out that they're not satisfied with it and demanding it, In that case, there actually is a lot of power and leverage to get things to change. Um, And so I think that's going to be really interesting to observe as time goes on. How, how, How might these dependencies between organizations and the fact that we're just so darn reliant on each other, how might that? make some of this basic security stuff that we know actually mandatory, actually required. Um, You know, Mike, when we were uh, prepping for this call, one of the things that we talked about is ransomware. And one of the funny things, I think it's funny. uh, If you go and you talk to, you know, mainstream media, go and talk to CSNBC, you know, what they want to know is like, what's happening with ransomware and how can we, what are we going to do about it? And it's like, we actually know exactly what to do about it. You just need to track your inventory. You need to patch and update your software and you need to have backups that work. You know, those things are not rocket science. Those things are known. They're fairly basic. The problem is that they're boring. The problem is that they're <laughs> not shiny. They're not sexy and they don't get yeah, prioritized. No, exactly. And so, and so this is something that I, I wonder about, you know, how, 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 How do we get to a state where the behavior of individuals changes such that this may be a little bit boring, but also super important, basic security controls actually get done?
2: Yeah, I think you were talking... Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, speaking of security controls, um, we got two listener questions. Um, First one's a, a listener that happens to actually be within the security weekly family. Of employees and they want to know what your Etsy link is.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh. So, like, is it weird that I don't even know? So, my shop <laughs> is called Magical Fern Crystals. Okay. And
0: sounds I'm like gonna
3: have too. a new moon sale. So, whereas like everyone else in the United States, I think is like having a Labor Day sale, I'm having a new moon sale. So keep an eye out magical fern crystals because i like you john live in the pacific northwest um and there just are like tons of ferns
2: so just have to be part of the, the enchanted, enchanted forest community. um <laughs> and then the second question so you know it's it's your your background at Citigel and and um drinking the uh the bism kool-aid it's a good good flavored kool-aid but you've, you've drank your 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 um you're sort of Exuding it, and one of our listeners sort of recognized that. And I don't sure if they joined late, but they're like, "She really suited this." So the question is, do you think if more organizations actually started adopting BSim, um, that this would be beneficial for everyone? How how would that affect? Um, you know, we're talking about controls, and and you know, so this is a more geeky, nerdy control, which probably not going to be on CNBC A time too soon. But <laughs> do you think the results of that go be worthwhile?
3: You know, I really like BSIM, I think that it would be an amazing first step if every organization did the most common activity in each domain. There are 12 domains. And in each of those domains, there is a most commonly observed activity. Now, my my perspective on the biggest weakness of BSIM is simply that The data set is what it is. And while I think it's something at any given point in time, like 100 or so organizations, which is pretty sweet, they're also self-selected. If you're going to be part of the official BSIM data pool, then you need to have an official BSIM done, which means you have to pay for an official BSIM. But that being said, I think that a lot of the organizations who self-select into that data pool have relatively high application security maturity. So, um, yes, I'm a huge BSIM fan. It, like any model, is not perfect. Um, but I do think that if folks decided that they wanted to, to, like every software company in the world, do those 12 most common activities, one per domain, that would be pretty sweet.
0: Do you think there's an aspect there too of, as, as you mentioned, BSIM tends to be much more descriptive rather than prescriptive as something like the, the OWASP SAM might be? Um, but with that said, you also meant, you know, we're talking about incentives. And I think uh, on the developer's perspective, uh, no developer is angling for a um, promotion or going to get recognition for doing the boring work, I think, as you rightly put it, of just. Application inventory, something like that. Um, they're working on features. They're shipping something new, something in the context of the business. So, is there, you know, as you're looking at these 12 domains, are there things that you think uh, could get better traction that could help I- inform, drive those incentives? So, the, on the dev side, the engineering side, we can get towards better inventories or better practices that we'd actually like to see to help this ecosystem.
3: So, that's tough. I would say that some of our historical approaches have not worked specifically when security (laughs) stands in the way and says i am a gate until you do a and b and c thou shalt not pass um that i feel like doesn't work super well because then people just go around um it's a super interesting question i mean i think that you know i've talked to folks about does it make sense for engineering and development leadership and engineers to have some sort of a security criteria on their performance evaluation. Like, what are the things that drive behavior? I think people's bonuses and their performance evaluations drive behavior. Um, And that really comes down to sort of what do the decision makers value? what does the person who's determining your salary and your bonus value in terms of the work that you do um so i do think there is sort of a higher up sort of executive level decision making uh type of decision that's got to be made i'm gonna say something awkward because this is live are we going for longer i thought we were done like three minutes ago
0: oh this is actually now
2: 90 minutes (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's called risk tolerance now no i think this is possibly a great segue caroline sorry to, to put us on the spot or put you on the spot for for doing that um what does the future hold for you well, you know as, as we, we can we can wrap up here and be a uh, kind to your uh uh time here uh because you mentioned no, you know, I wish, you I, i'm enjoying shopping. this so much i wish okay. i
3: wish it were 60 or 90 minutes on my calendar what does the future hold for caroline well i'm gonna I'm gonna be selling a bunch of crystals um but in addition to my very quirky side hobby um you know i i want to see some change in this industry right we're gonna have the 2021 version of the oas top 10 come out i think like a month from now it would be so cool if it weren't basically the same as the one that we published Mm -hmm. in 2003 which to me Uh means that you know, for literally almost two decades now. Can I even do basic math? I'm not sure. But for a long time, we as an industry, we know how to find these things. We know how to fix these things. We know how to prevent these things. And yet they persist and not in a good like feminism type of way. Um, So to me, that means that whatever we as an industry have been trying, it's like not working. We have to do something different. I do think that The solution is people and process, Um, which I could go on and on and on about. Um, But that's, you know, in my lifetime, I want to see a different OWASP top 10. And I want it to be different, not just because somebody decided to make it different. I want it to be different because we solve some of these problems. That's what I would like my future to be.
0: No, that that's a great. I, just a big old plus one to that. And um, nevertheless, I hope you continue to persist on the Humans of InfoSec podcast and uh, driving home these messages for the community so we can actually get a new OWASP top 10 because we've actually solved something more fundamental. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, Caroline.
3: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again. Thanks to John as well. And thanks to everybody who was hanging out on Discord and uh, listening to us as we're doing this live. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll return with news of the week. Looking to improve your web
1: application security? Probly is reinventing web application security. Probly focuses on the vulnerabilities that matter, eliminates false positives with evidence based scanning, and provides a simple point and shoot solution that is easy to use. Probly's thorough coverage ensures accurate identification of vulnerabilities in any modern web application or API. Improve your web application security processes by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Probly and start your free trial today. Whether you need to manage bots, protect cloud applications at runtime, stop form jacking attacks, or secure your web applications and APIs, only Imperva offers a unified solution to protect from edge to application and data in one tool. Imperva helps you achieve more, save money, and become more efficient with fewer security vendors needed. Start a free trial today to easily protect your apps and website with Imperva.
0: Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash imperva. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. InfoSec World 2021 is proud to announce its keynote lineup for this year's in-person event. Hear from Robert Herjavec, plus heads of security at the NFL, TikTok, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Stanford University, and more. Plus, Security Weekly listeners save 20% on World Pass and main conference registration. Visit securityweekly.com ISW 2021 to register now. Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through 7th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. We are excited to announce our first round of speakers who are Leslie Carhart, David Kennedy, Alyssa Miller, O'Shea Bowens, Marina Savata, Patrick Koble, Chris Eng, Eric Escobar, Nick Leghorn, Michael Schlatt, Kevin Johnson, and Justin Kohler. Visit securityweekly.com unlocked to register and to check out our exciting lineup. And now we have an exciting lineup of news. And uh, the news this week is a lot of vulns, but a little bit of um, cloud security in there as well. But I think as usual, John, let's start off with some vulnerabilities. One was a kind of fun, scary, sad, I'm not sure which uh, adjective I want to throw in there, but it's about ChaosDB and uh, some researchers who hacked a whole bunch of Azure databases, um, which is pretty interesting because they did it through apparently like a jupyter notebooks and the reason i say interesting is that from a design perspective from a security approach using something like the open source jupyter notebooks to create a web-based, a browser-based isolation and interaction with data sets seems like the smart approach. um, But unfortunately, a a smart approach can uh, have some security vulnerabilities if it's not implemented correctly. Unfortunately, we don't quite have the technical details of what went wrong here. But um, it was pretty bad since basically you could get access to just about anyone else's database. So
2: um, Mm. not a good thing. This is one of the um, interesting things about open source packages. As uh, a way, I'm going I'm to approach this from two different aspects. But the first, um, most open source stuff, uh, the geeks working on that don't think about multi tenancy, right? I mean, Kubernetes is just mm. finally starting to get to multi tenancy. I think with one twenty two, they have some stuff in there. Um, I noticed some commercial versions out there, commercial uh, versions of. Um, of the, the ML stuff itself, um, but really Jupyter. What we're seeing, I'm guessing Microsoft probably took the open source, including the Jupyter server, and then they were trying to make it secure enough. That's just a guess, I, I, I obviously we don't know. Um, but that's what results in things like this. Um, there's another open source package I'm looking at using at the new gig, and we're pondering, do we want to write in, um, uh, contribute back that multi-tenancy part itself so it, it, it's a thing right I mean think about it if, if you write a um a type of decently sized application that becomes open source and popular unless you're thinking about multi-tenancy from the beginning to go back and add that in at all your checks and balances and, and user concepts in there it's 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 a bit of bit of legwork it's not the easiest thing to do so I suspect I that's probably where you know the, the root of this is um but I think the way I'm going to think about it is from the point of view of um, system hardening uh, and not caring about the, the the cloud side of it all. But if you are um, bringing anything into production, and we're going to come back to this with the S3 story later, which is super scary to me, um, but if you're going to be bringing something into prod, man, you better know what you got, right? You better know what all those bells and whistles are and how you turn things on and off and what's what's on that you actually want on in prod versus do you need something off? Um, I, I haven't used. Yeah, I've got Chaos DB stuck in my head now. Um, I haven't <laughs> used Cosmos DB. Um, the right. folks that I know who use it love it, um, including people inside of Microsoft. Like at, at you know multiple gigs back of mine, they're like, you need to drop the database you guys are using and use this instead. They really love it. It's apparently able to do really great stuff and it's really quick and, and snappy. Um, but unfortunately, you know, th- things happen and this is one of them. So. Yeah, at end of the day, you know, before you launch something, I know it's super easy for me to say right now, and I'll probably do it myself in the future. you got to go through and actually understand very carefully what this thing is that you're launching, especially when it's as complex as this. It is. And I think the only thing I could possibly add there, too,
0: is that it sounds like Microsoft also had some good... Logging and auditing so that they were able to say with confidence, here were tenants who were affected by this. Um, here are others who are potentially affected, you in other words, exposed. Um, so in addition to what you're extolling right up front, do the design work, do the multi-tenancy understanding and hardening. Um, but good logging and monitoring can also at least save you from the perspective of being able to answer the question. Was I affected or not, or who was I affected um, from just being able to? It, it, you, you don't want to answer that question with just a shrug of the shoulders and say, "Uh, maybe, not sure, don't know," um, yeah. because that's also not a good look. <laughs> Um, I will hit another just another quick vuln. I'm not sure there's much to talk about here other than a tie into the last episode. I think I made a offhand combat com combat <laughs> comment about uh, not implementing uh, ASN.1 uh, yet again. And here we have a string mishandling uh, within OpenSSL and how how uh, C strings are null terminated or length defined strings within ASN.1, and of course a vulnerability came out of that. Uh, it sounds like both that vuln and another vulnerability related to a um, uh, Shang-Mi algorithm that uh, probably not a cipher anyone but the Chinese government is using um, are both hard to exploit. So it's more of an interesting uh, case of OpenSSL having yet another vuln in kind of a, a implementation mismatch, sort of like the Glibc bug that we talked about last uh, week as well, in the sense of, are you handling a, a null pointer, but when you go over into the p-thread side of the house, um, maybe there's different assumptions about that API. So uh, a subtle but not uncommon type of coding error in that string handling.
2: Yeah, I, I saw this mm-hmm. well I, I saw this last week um, and you know what actually stuck in my head. This is you know it's we try to add color and flavor and I'm including myself in this with, with how we discuss some of these stories um and when i saw this one go through during the week um what actually stuck on my head was the font that they're using so and in this case it makes sense cuz they were trying to point out you know the actual version of OpenSSL, which is um fixes um the 1.1.1l lima but depending on your font it looks like 1.1.11 um but unfortunately that's what the part that stuck on my head um it doesn't look like it affected tls directly i don't know this, this is one of those I, I will add a bit of color um you know we've talked multiple times about open ssl and should people people be moving to libra ssl or something else mm-hmm. that's a little cleaner and, and i'm not knocking the guys that wrote it right you know it it's it's purely just this is a, a big ball of wax which we've had for the last 20 years 20 plus years probably and it's sort of like glibc it's there's so much stuff in there compared to mlibc that if you can move somewhere else it's probably mm-hmm. your best interest
0: <laughs>
2: no absolutely from a that
0: point of view. from and I forgot to throw in, I should have thrown this article in there, but I'm going to take a, a quick tangent. There was an article that, um, that, that I did come across that was basically get paid to improve Linux and open source security. And uh, it's a good tie-in to um, our segment from last episode as well uh, about the Linux Foundation that where it was basically funding open source security work. And one of the things that stood out to me was that they want to improve the Linux kernel's ability to be compiled with Clang. And the reason I'm bringing this up to tie it into OpenSSL is that OpenSSL, OpenSSL does have, I think, as you rightly pointed out, John, quite a bit of, uh, call it tech debt, call it historical legacy of the original architecture design, the original intent to support a massive but unnecessary amount of different algorithms, especially a massive and potentially unnecessary amount of different chipsets. Um, And there was a lot of hand-rolled assembly uh, that that was part of OpenSSL and getting rid of that. Uh, is a great attack surface reduction. And the parallel I'm making here with just getting the Linux kernel, for example, to compile cleanly with Clang is something that you go through the code and just get rid of a lot of the warnings, a lot of the the cruft, if you will, that builds up over time because the compilers can be your friends. And uh, unfortunately, the compilers weren't able to highlight this misuse of the the C string null terminated versus length um, defined strings. But that's hopefully kind of a future that we're getting towards or the way that fuzzing fuzzing perhaps even uh, as part of the build compile process can highlight more effectively, more quickly for us. So um, I guess there was a little bit more to talk about there rather than just a, yet another boring C-based memory safety issue in another project.
2: But that's, you know, it'd be good to add that one into the, um, the, the show notes because think about it from the point of view of People who are all like, I I want to contribute to open source. I want to get into this, but I have no appsec background. If we can point them at a list of like, here's some, you know, uh, an existing working open source package, but looking at it with a different compiler, and here's how to sort of recognize some of the errors and how to fix them. um, That seems like a pretty great way for some folks to get involved in that, to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to build on that, I threw that into our Discord server, and I'll throw it up in the show notes as well. But it does have an aspect of mentorship to it. You don't need to be a security expert, uh, especially just to go through and do some clean up of compile warnings from Clang. But these can lead to security benefits. And of course, the article does have some OpenBSD and some other very security specific um, uh, projects that they want to fund that would be great to learn on. Um So we'll definitely highlight. Thank you for that, uh, that, that nudge. I am going to turn to what I think was a little bit more interesting vulnerability. And this was in Bumble dating app. And once again, this kind of, uh, this is a neat to me article because it covers, or what's, what's the, the, the metaphor I'm looking for. It closes that gap between just pure technical application security and trust and safety or the safety of an app how are what is the context this is a callback to what we're discussing discussion we just had with Caroline about uh, the impact of that apps security on the user base and who are the users using it in this case uh, what a researcher quite cleverly figured out was how to do some more pinpoint tracking for uh, of a user's uh, particular location basically triangulate based on how they would see the app rounding from three to four miles, for example, but using those uh, flips from a three to four uh, to say, ah, you are right at this edge of this point. And once you get a couple p- points to triangulate, or uh, three for triangulation, four more if you need more, uh, you can get a very specific location of a person. And that of course can lead to things like stalking, which of course within dating apps is a, should definitely be a concern. So that was a really cool um, th- there was some really cool smart analysis there, as well as some another good analysis of the the HMAC that was using a client-side secret, uh, so that which kind of defeats the purpose of using an HMAC because if everybody knows the secret to calculate this hash, uh, it's not quite providing the same integrity uh, and in uh, non-repudiation that you really want from from an HMAC. So there's also a cool thing in the in the fix for this, but I want to pause there just and see if there was anything on the 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 attack side of things that stood out to you, John.
2: Um no, what I like about this actually is that they're not just showing the problem, but they're um showing how showing multiple ways to think about how to fix it, right? I, I like the solution yeah. actually which um Tinder had since they've already gone down this path. Um and it, I think for for those like me who are visual, uh, browsing through this and like just the um first the, the triangulation like we should be able to figure it out but like the three circles on the over the map of sf makes it very obvious what's going on um and then very simply just making the, the lines thicker on those circles um you know that that's a, um, a geometric concept if you want to sort of if you can think in that particular mindset but that's one really great way to fix it right it's it's if you can make that the border become more and more fuzzy um that that helps save people's lives quite honestly in some cases. So this isn't, <laughs> this is a pretty serious thing, um, unfortunately. But um, yeah, no, I know I, I like this article. It's, um, it's, a, it's a, a fun read actually, you know, this is very real world. This is very um, modern day apps. We think about people just using them on a phone, right? This comes back to like, when we first started having um, API security coming on people's minds, what about five, eight years ago? It's probably earlier, but um, people are like, oh, it's just like, you know, it's, it's a mobile app with TLS back to a server. I don't need to worry about the API, right? It, everything's safe. But we're seeing now that people are, are a little more sophisticated in that. So it's, it's a good thought process also for people to think about how, how do they want to um, be designing and writing these type of applications.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it, it's a great write-up. So on that communication side of things, it's just another great thing to read and, and emulate, to be honest. As well as you were pointing out, threat models really, really, really—I'm going to use three reallys there because I think it's important—need um, to go beyond the OWASP Top Ten, which is sort of the, the 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 punching bag we're using for the day. Of beyond just, did you use an HMAC? Uh, you know, are you rounding to a single digit to you know to two digit? How many decimal points? It's more of what is the impact and how should we protect that because the other thing that really was nice about this is as you also pointed out john is as they were describing what the countermeasures would be it wasn't just a matter of changing the number of decimal points it was also really neat to um in, to use their words saying you know who should be in your match queue in other words who's the potential population that should even be participating in this type of interaction Now. Obviously, in this day and age, it can be is possible to spoof GPS coordinates, those types of things. But I think that is a smart choice in the, sen- in the sense that it starts to move into the aspect of increasing attacker costs and making it harder for the attacker to uh, get into the specific setting up the, the machine state, setting up getting into the right context in order to be able to exploit and take advantage of these types of uh, flaws. So great read. Please go take a look at it. And I, uh, we also linked to another article about Tinder, for example, too. So uh, great, uh, a couple, bunch of great uh, blog posts from, from this uh, researcher. There is another quick article that I'm going to just jump on real quick because it's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. It's just the top 15 vulnerabilities exploited millions of times at hack Linux systems. Now, unfortunately, this is yet another sort of that Straddling the line of of, of marketing and uh, a state of the state of something type of reports that we've seen for the last few years. But what stood out to me is that not only was there a 2013 vulnerability that apparently is still being exploited, but there's a lot of CVEs from the last from 2017, 2018, 2019. And they seem very represented by just a usual suspects of Struts, Drupal, WordPress. So rather than pick on those in pers- in specific, because like, hey, no surprise there, maybe it's just what's the conversation to have around Struts or Drupal or WordPress? if I can pronounce the ball correctly, in the spirit of, is there something in their architecture or design that is just making them harder either for patching or they're just not good software from a security perspective? And that maybe ties into that aspect of when we're talking about, should is it time to get off of OpenSL in favor of modern designs in LibreSSL SSL or Boring or one of those options? So that was kind of the the, the angle that I wanted to take from that that uh, particular top 15 list.
2: I'm just looking through that. Is that 10? No, it was 15. Um, did I did that count real quick. One, two, I'm, I'm counting how many are um, Java based. One, two, three. Yeah, quite a bit. That's what stood four, out to five, me. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. I, you know, I'm, I'm giving the camera side eye, but for, for those not looking at that and also <laughs> thanks for, thanks for mentioning life I needed that flashback. Um, but it's, what else is there to say there right you're it is i mean is struts really being exploited that much was my first thought just because you're calling that top of the list um, and i guess it's sort of by cbss yeah I, I i'm not sure what else we need to add to this it's it's um i mean that that to me looks like i used to say don't use php but that and i know it's just the language people are using is, it well mm, to a large portion probably not i'd say Okay, of those nine, what percentage of that—not that we can figure this out quickly—but what percentage of that would be just because it's Java, or is it because there's a certain style of coding which people do in Java? Or right. I mean, it's—I'm being being unfair here because a lot of those are Struts, uh, but you've also got—you know—did um, I see WebLogic in here and Jetty? Yeah, so it's—I mean, that that smells a lot like a Java issue to me. And I, that doesn't sound right, but at the same time, that that's what this list looks like.
0: Yeah, I'm. I, I I see where you're going there, and I did make a comment too in the show notes that even even on WordPress, that WordPress, of course, PHP, but WordPress core tends to be actually pretty secure. And I don't. Yeah. I'm. I'm sure our listeners will will tell me if I'm wrong here, but I don't. I can't recall a impactful cve or cvss in the wordpress core in the last several years to be honest yeah they've all been in plugins and it's the plugins where i think it's getting to that kind of where the, the path you were going down there john is that you know is there a design pattern is there just that the fact that the plugin architecture isn't conducive to being able to have granular access in other words one little flaw is an all or nothing now. You get the equivalent of you you've got root uh, essentially um if you can break a poorly implemented WordPress plugin. And that's kind of what I think is um a, a way at least I try to steer that conversation especially if you're trying to figure out should we adopt this? Should we not adopt this? Or if you're an internal appsec team looking at your own legacy systems or your own current systems, are we seeing a lot of vulns and why is the root cause because we just forgot to do something or is the root cause because we don't have a framework that's protecting us from cross-site scripting from CSRF. And unfortunately the next, uh, OWASP top 10 is going to read like that familiar list that Caroline was pointing out and, uh, SQL injection, cross-site scripting, CSR. And I'm going to put all of our listeners and myself to sleep as I read those once again, after what, two decades of the same thing.
2: Mike's new bedtime stories. Um, <laughs> 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 Sorry. Uh, the oh man, I had a thought there. Uh, it was better than just a snark. Um, back, uh, oh yeah. So um, going back to spending another thirty seconds on this, think about you know what we were describing in that previous article, the um, the Microsoft database and um, hardening. I used to run professionally, commercially WordPress hosting, um, and it really to me it came down to you know um, defense and death depth. Uh, So if you think about a lot of the things on here, okay, RCE, if you got an RCE in an application, if you're launching, if you're deploying an application, which might have an RCE, how would you protect the rest of your applications from that if it's multi-tenant or not? Um, If you've got, wow, these are mostly RCE. If you've got a um, information disclosure, how would you minimize what type of information is being disclosed? Um, Deserialization my, my argument's falling apart that's purely AppSec but on a lot of these the point being it's not just defending or not just either picking the right WordPress plugin or you know hardening it correctly or trying to make sure it's patched but also what does the rest of that stack look like um, if you've got a database and maybe okay you've got a database with a bunch of WordPress accounts Um, WordPress sites. So hopefully they'll all have different uh, database logins, right? With different actual Mm -hmm. permissions to the database. So if you do get through SQLI, you're only getting to your own database, not to everyone else's. So there's a lot of things like that, that I think, again, um, think about that when you guys are, are building and deploying.
0: Yeah, and I think so. So let's go on a journey to the opposite end of the spectrum here, John. I, I picked up two articles from the uh, recent TLDR SEC newsletter. So uh, thanks, Clint, for helping me out there. And uh, one is cloud security orienteering, which is a good high level g- kind of strategy about approaching cloud security. And to me, it was also just a collection of a great links to reading uh, to that that link out to a lot of other things that need to be read that. um is made a big long uh, bedtime bedtime reading list for me. But the other thing, let's talk about that S3 security document because you alluded to mm. that in the in the beginning. Now, I have a couple feelings about this thing. For one, we have cool an S3 security document. Somebody did a great deep dive and came up with. Oh, once again, I forgot to prep our fantastic video uh, AV gents and to say drum roll please. So. What is someone, with 163 pages, thank you, John, 163 pages of S3 security, this is clearly useful to someone, but clearly I think (laughs) you don't take this 163 pages and throw it over the DevOps team and say, here's the product security team's requirements, go follow this. Uh, Because no one's going to read it. No one cares. So uh, I think the discussion here is more about how do we respond and react and how do we distill this into something that's very brief and actionable for that product secure for the for the devops team to follow on
2: yeah um yeah i think the people this is useful it's useful to two people one trust on cloud because they're trying to sell a product Um, (laughs) right i'm not familiar with them in any way shape or form so i'm not you know i'm just saying that's what they're doing let's be honest and then second um this is very useful to consultants or auditors who are billing hourly um i i first saw that list when we were rolling into the show into the note into the news segment and johnny was probably wondering while i was on mute what was i screaming and making faces off and that's when i saw that a uh, first it was what probably about an eight or nine probably eight point document font eight point font in the doc is the main thing and then hot damn it's actually 163 pages long i mean this is completely i'm sure it's useful i'm, I'm not going to say the opposite but what and they, there was a comment in the the blog post which points to it saying what it's broken to 30 32 34 different areas 32 um yeah I I what do you do besides throw your hands in the air on that one um you can automate or get someone else's automated or, or hopefully have um I mean this could be an interesting point to have <sighs> there's all these products out there in IAC space for all these products out there for securing IAC and hell, I used to work at one, but wouldn't it make sense to actually have a growing collection of um, IAC pattern libraries that say, here's how you use S3 securely, or here's how you use um, to play an, an EC2 instance with automatic patching or, you know, RGS or, Hey, let's talk about Cosmos with, you know, everything turned off except what you want. So why don't we actually as an industry or even as a community come up with patterns like that? So not every individual person has to go and harden this crap every single time. Um, hopefully that's a more <laughs> useful rant than usual, but come on, if even if 10 people read all 163 pages, you've wasted so much time here. Um, and it's, I'm not saying it's it's not valuable, right? It's super valuable, but let's try and fix the problem at the beginning instead of having everyone to read this. I think that's, that's the only way to attack this. I think it's, I, I don't know, tell me I'm wrong, please. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have the heart to do
0: it because I don't think they're <laughs> too off base, quite honestly. I think what, what I'd love to see here is that theme of review your exposure of your S3 buckets, you know, make yeah. them private by default at the account level. And if you can enforce that through IAC... All the better. Uh, and then have a discussion with your developers and your between your developers and your AppSec team to say how sensitive is the data in here? What should be our encryption approach? Should we just use the default bucket encryption? Should we do some client-managed keys so that only the services that are dropping the data into there have access to decrypt the data? Otherwise, you're just looking at blobs. And for example, we'll do a callback to what was it, 2020, the Capital One breach um, got into an S3 bucket but the content inside the bucket was additionally encrypted. So you actually would have had to get to the decryption keys to access it. And I realized that took me maybe 60 seconds to describe, but quite honestly, I think those are two points that um, I would distill out of these 163 pages. And then if I'm pressed to follow the rule of threes, I'd say, cool let's turn on some logging so that we can get some access auditing so we can see what services touched it and what data went in and what data went out and um let's move on and do something constructive and build uh with our time because it's
2: a long pdf but um you know i think just two seconds on there um amazon has gone through a lot of, I mean, right, this S3 used to be the poster boy for a while for people to hack on. And I think they've, they've done a pretty good job of securing it by default. Um, it's not 100% there, as you mentioned. You, I mean, I can't remember, is encryption on by default? Mm, pop quiz. I can't remember if it's off and you can turn it on. And no, I think it's on by default, but then you can pick a key, right? So they're they're getting better at some of these things. Um that the thought process there for people is if you are using your own key and that's going to be in, I don't know, say either a parameter store or a secret store, is your app written in such a way that if someone can get in, they can't go and grab that secret from the secret store from the app and then use it to decrypt what's in S3? That's where this stuff gets complicated, but um, every little bit helps.
0: Every little bit helps, and actually, there, there is a tie-in between uh, the what was it the, the ChaosDB uh, article and what you're describing there. And those same researchers had another talk at Black Hat that were where they were discussing uh, more of a call to action, saying we need a CVE for cloud vulnerabilities. And I think what they're really getting to is that there are common misconfigurations, and then a lot of the cloud service providers. We're talking about AWS. So I'll use Amazon as an example. Amazon did come out and they changed their uh, metadata service so it's more resistant to ssrf um, whereas uh, gcp had already had countermeasures for that and they did that actually speaking of in re- in reaction to the uh, capital one breach uh, amazon also made it so that it, you i think right re- i'm correct to say by default you, you will be notified or you have to make your s3 buckets public so they're doing some changes for those secure defaults But there's a long tail of all of these existing tenants, to use our (laughs) word of the day, that haven't necessarily made those changes. So it's one of those things to say the cloud service providers might be improving. But if you haven't gone back and changed your old configurations back to these new and better defaults, uh, you're still going to be vulnerable. So there is something to be said there between IAC, these cloud posture management, how to go and find and fix the, the nature of those particular vulnerabilities.
2: And, and I think, speaking you know, of, oh, go ahead. Briefly on that one, it was something I was sometimes going to mention when we were talking to Carolyn and we, you know, we ran out of time. We, we could have gone for another 90 minutes. Um, see if I can make this tightly packaged. Um, a lot of the stuff that both she was talking and what you're sort of saying there right now, that's great if you are just picking something off the shelf and using it, right? Because then yes. the um, best practice, whatever, apply to you. If you've got someone who's either wheel re- reinventing or they're doing something specific, or they've got like really specific use cases of why they don't use Etsy, like one of my best friends has, he's hugely customized. And I have to admit, I helped him um, Drupal to be able to do all sorts of customizations on products when in the shopping cart that was in Drupal. And it's so customized, and now he can't actually pick it up and move to a more modern platform like Shopify. How does someone like that actually keep that type of thing secure, right? So this is when we go in right. and we start checking with open source, this is one of the things which will bite you. If you don't push those changes back upstream, you're now supporting that bad boy for next as long as you're using that thing. Um, but that also makes it more difficult to secure. So, um, you know, it, it, that's a big thing to keep in mind. It's, it's very simple to say, but think about it. If, if you're doing something that's not just shooting and taking that puzzle piece and using it, but you're actually doing something custom with it, um, you're... you're you're creating a lot of late nights for yourself. Well, speaking of things that are simple to say, but uh, possibly
0: take a lot more effort, uh, there's a final article that you uh, pointed out here, John, about Linux 5.14 kernel update. Um, And the easy part to say is that it will include security and performance improvements. Uh, (laughs) I think that is uh, a a lot more engineering work that went under the uh, hood there about what actually it took to make these improvements. So uh, help us understand what those are
2: yeah i actually wanted to go and, and read some of the patches on this and i haven't yet unfortunately but um the the, the big one which is is going to be it's so it's funny because i saw this article on TechCrunch, which shows what google news is feeding me instead of some of the more security sites but um still i love TechCrunch. i'm probably spending a lot of time on there and that's why but uh think about um uh, god over the last few years one of our biggest stories was specter and meltdown right the ability to um uh not so much poison a cache on a CPU, but uh, use the capability of um, uh, um, forward lookup and predictive lookup of your uh, um, of your execution pipelines to be able to uh, improve performance. And that was the provided a vector to be able to see what other parts of the application or other sets could be in that cache. Uh, so they've now come up with a way to try and minimize that by allowing a caller to specify that Different, I'll say, um, trust boundaries don't execute on applications in different trust uh, uh, areas don't execute on the same uh, CPU core. So, right, that's what was going on with Spectre and Meltdown is since you're sharing a core um, along with potentially the predictive um, or uh, speculative pipeline, um, that's what gets you into that particularly messy area. So being able to actually specify, hey, I don't want these two processes to run on that same core and actually separate them to different places, um, that, that uh, should be able to mitigate a pretty good amount of this. I think that's the big one to me, and I think that's pretty neat.
0: Absolutely. I don't think I have anything uh, good to add. That was a great summary. So um, with that, I will say thank you to Mr. Kinsella for joining us once again. Thanks to everybody who was in Discord and uh, hanging out with us. Uh, We have a a break next week, which means you have a chance to catch up on our past episodes and a chance to take a moment to like and subscribe if you haven't already done so. And with that, uh, we'll see you in two weeks on Application Security Weekly.